You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen Welcome to episode 717 of the Wicked Library As always, before we get started today A big thank you to our new Patreon supporters Our patrons get a completely ad-free show and other great rewards. Plus, they help keep the show coming for all of you. Since our last episode, Robert Light edited his pledge from $2 to $5. We also had new pledges from Heiko Fasse, Preston Waller, Brianna Lang, Brad Erickson, Anthony Michael Buffundo, Raphael Estrada, Everett Lathrop, Ariel Teague, Aaron McCormick, Sharon Carlton, and Bria Green. Thank you all so much. A wicked amount of time and love goes into making the show, so your support lets us know you appreciate the effort. And by the way, whose ever name I pronounced the worst this week, because I try really hard and I know I mess them up, shoot me an email at feedback at ninthstory.com. Let me know how it should be pronounced. And if yours is the worst pronunciation, I'll send you out a free t-shirt. How about that? Because guess what? We have t-shirts now. I know several of you have asked for them. So we finally have them available at thewickedlibrary.com. Just click on T-shirts and more at the top of the page. We'll be slowly adding new designs as time goes on. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. And if you support the show at the $5 a month and above level, we do an extra story for you each month. These stories will eventually be heard here on a quarterly basis so our authors still get the benefits of having our entire audience hear their work. But hey, who wants to wait to get extra wicked? Finally, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate and review us on iTunes, like this one from Mini Ninja equals Mininja. Five stars. Such a treat for my ear holes. I discovered the Wicked Library when host Dan Foytek told the intro story to another favorite podcast of mine just a story. I've been a Wicked Library junkie ever since. This show isn't just for horror fans. It's for anyone who loves a wicked good story. The voice acting is top-notch, and the stories are incredible. I find myself telling friends about this and that story and the impact it had on my night, morning, or whatever. By the way, the crossover episode with Victoria getting a visit from her uncle made me subscribe to The Lift immediately. This podcast has opened my world up to new authors and I find myself heading over to their websites and Amazon pages for more. I really enjoy the author interviews after the story. So inspiring. No one else is doing this, and I love what these guys do. You've said a lot in that, and I really appreciate that review, because really it's our goal to create this collaborative web with all the other shows that we admire, the authors, the artists, and the composers, and kind of get them out there into the world and help new listeners readers discover them. So thanks so much for that review. I'm really pleased that the show is doing what we want it to do, helping fans find new artists to enjoy, be they writers, artists, or composers, and helping create this collaborative web of fans of good story. If you enjoy the interviews at the end of the show, check out the Ninth Story podcast with Jeanette and Alexander for more interviews and discussions with storytellers of all types. Today's episode features two tales by Scarlett R. Algy, whose name fans of our other show, The Lift, will already know. This episode is narrated by a very special guest narrator, Eden Royce, whose own stories you heard narrated by Samantha Pleasant Labaugh in episode number 710. And now, let's get wicked. Roses are red, violets are blue. If you can't take horror stories, this podcast is not for you! (laughs) I'm a poet and didn't even know it. Listener discretion is advised.
Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of yet. Hold on to yourselves, royals and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> And Drown Melancholy by Scarlet R. Algae. The headache has lasted 19 days. 19 days. Charlotte can count every one of them. It had started the day after she'd spiked her coke a little too vigorously and stumbled into the pond at the company picnic. An insidious little pressure behind her eyes and above her upper teeth. Sinuses, she thought the consequence of snorting out a noseful of stinking, muddy water. It had taken two days to get the gritty feeling out of her mouth and the eye-watering bouquet of algae and catfish out of her nasal cavities. By then, she'd realized it wasn't her sinuses. Migraine. That's been the consensus over the last 17 days of two general practitioners and a neurologist. Charlotte's inclined to agree with them, She doesn't have the throat quivering nausea, not yet, but the auras are there, little flecks and zags of color that flit in and out of the edges of her vision, like UFOs, eluding her most concentrated efforts to focus on them, jiggling and dancing with every throb between her temples. The pain's there too, rasping at the backs of her eyeballs, thrumming between her teeth, jackhammering the inside of her skull so hard She expects to blow out bone dust with every breath. The doctor's solutions had been bed rest, Tylenol, and time. Charlotte's boss had watched her zombie shuffle into work, glazed and tight-jawed, right up until yesterday, and had suggested a week off instead. That suits Charlotte just fine. It lets her sit home in the constant dark and slug down the pain with booze, and the oxycodone left over from last year's dental surgery. Not the wisest combination she knows, but it's the only thing that's even taking the edge off. Charlotte lolls in her overstuffed recliner, her third extra-tall double-strength rum and coke close at hand, waiting for the pills she'd sucked down to kick in. The late-night news program is the only thing she's found that isn't too bright or too loud. She's got the volume low, just enough to pick up, to occupy the one sliver of her brain that isn't threatening to explode from her ears. Even now, at midnight, with all the blinds closed and all the lights off, she can only squint in agony at the screen for a second before giving up and closing her eyes. Now for an update. Medical researchers believe they may have found a parasite responsible for the nation's recent outbreak of drowning deaths. Some of the footage you're about to see may be disturbing to some viewers. Charlotte slits one puffy eye open, then the other. The news anchor is a bottle blonde with a weary gaze, and her voice is pitched up with urgency. Nearly 200 people have drowned across the country in a month, all of them seemingly accidents, all baffling. There had been talk about it at the office three weeks ago, when the number had been a few dozen. Rumors and jokes about some secret cult urging its members to suicide in pools and bathtubs. She'd even had a few barbs thrown her way after the pond incident, suggesting she circle her backyard pool with a padlock fence, just in case God or aliens gave her the urge. The scene switches to a bearded bald man, Dr. Something or Other, wearing a lab coat over his suit in a book-crammed office, and Charlotte tries to focus. Surgeons have extracted worms from the brains of some recent victims. His voice is flat with practice, and the scene cuts away to the shore of a lake, somewhere in Tennessee if Charlotte's cramping brain reads the caption right. The voiceover continues. The specimens haven't been positively identified, but there are early signs that they may be a species closely related to Spinocodordes tellini, 
a hairworm known to cause similar behavior in, Charlotte tunes him out. Her gaze is on the scene, eyes wide open now. A man in a green t-shirt and purple shorts lies leaking on the ground, recently dredged up, circled by emergency personnel. His face is a smeared slate blur, the concealing effect growing into a pixelated muddle of bruised tints as the camera zooms in. But the blur doesn't cover the sand, caked like packed brown sugar in his sodden blonde hair, or the blackest trail of lumpy blood that has drooled from his left ear. Charlotte stares, momentarily fascinated, as the blood continues to ooze. Not sure yet how this animal has evolved to infect humans, or how infestation begins. However, reports from victims' family members suggest symptoms. On the screen, someone is shaking out a white sheet over the drowned man's body. The camera shifts away, but not before Charlotte catches sight of a military-style boot, so shiny it reflects the red crawl of the ambulance lights. Dizziness, stiffness, lack of coordination, behavioral changes in the presence of water. Between the boot and the body, partially obscured, is a long, thin creature that lies coiled in a heap, the unnamed parasitic worm Charlotte supposes, though it's like nothing she's ever seen. No worm could be this slender, an overcooked strand of brown spaghetti sauced with blood and black flecks. It squirms visibly, and the sight makes her sore brain twinge in sympathy. A blue-gloved hand swoops into the scene, bundling the worm into a clear plastic bag. Charlotte's eyes ache, her vision joggling momentarily. She blinks hard, seeing spots, and drinks off her rum and coke. She needs more coke. Grimacing, Charlotte eases out of the recliner, leftover ice rattling in her glass as she sways. She starts jerkily toward the TV and remembers she'll need its light to grope her way around the kitchen. Thank God for open floor plans when you're too drunk to navigate properly. At the refrigerator, dull warmth begins at the top of Charlotte's head and paints its way down the inside of her skull. Her stomach does a little flip and her jaw relaxes. Finally, finally, the oxycodone has made its appearance and she can forego the rum. She pours her soda with shaking hands, trying not to weep from sheer relief. Back in her recliner, fresh drink at the ready and television still droning low, Charlotte falls asleep. Charlotte awakens to three realizations. First is that there's light seeping through the blinds, cool and gray as though the sun's gone into hiding and that the television screen is frozen in a garish-striped test pattern. Both are still far too bright for her liking, and she scowls as her eyelids snap immediately into the squint she's worn for nearly three weeks. The second is that opening her eyes has roused the pain again, a more frenetic throb than last night, one that vibrates her eardrums and crackles along her jawbone under her teeth. Reflexively, she grinds her molars. The third is that she's madly thirsty. Hey, where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> Hey there! Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. The Tomb Wife by Scarlett R. Algie. Remiere is dead. The boy who had come to the mouth of the catacombs would have fled at the sight of my face had he not been tasked with his message. Now I prowl the foggy churchyard of St. Vincent of the Shroud, waiting for the one who will come to fetch me, gathering dew on my feet. My dress is gray velvet, a mourning shade, and one unsoiled by the grave. But living among the dead, 
I had forgotten shoes. Hermia would have laughed at that, as he laughed at so many other things. Now there isn't anyone here to laugh. I walk among the graves and mouth the names on the stones, mouth the words that come to me, work life back into my rusty voice. I speak my name, Delphine, Delphine, but get no answer. I'm a ghoul after all. No one comes to speak with me. There's a stranger at the grave of Marie-France Remiere, a resting place I know not only for its occupant, but also for the statue that stands guard over it, a weeping Madonna that had once adorned Remiere's back garden, Our Lady of Sorrows. Madame Remiere had been delicious. He, this stranger, has brought nothing to her grave but himself. No flowers, no trinkets. He wears a brown tweed suit and a long black coat against the damp, and his hat shadows much of his face. But when the limp, wet leaves squelch under my feet, he turns to me, a smile half hidden under his bushy white mustache, and says, Delphine. I stop in place. Is he the one sent to wait for me? You know me. Remiere spoke of you often. He doesn't notice the grating squeak of my voice, or he pretends for politeness. He was young when you met, yes? Just starting as the town butcher, making ends meet by robbing graves for a doctor's studies. He steps away from the grave and toward me, hand extended. I'm Auguste Cardin. I was the doctor. I've never heard this name. Remiere never spoke it. To him, there was always just the doctor. I stare at his hand, the smooth palm and neat short nails for a full three seconds before I remember to touch it with my own. He smells of cologne and carbolic soap and the pink of life is in his cheeks. My own fingernails are long and cracked with burial earth beneath them. Why are you here? Dr. Cardell releases my hand. Remiere has left you a gift. It was his dying wish that I find you. He touches my uncovered hair and takes my chin in his hand, staring at my face. He was right. You're beautiful. I am thin, barefoot, ashy-skinned and yellow-eyed. I am not beautiful. I say nothing. Twenty years have passed since I last saw Remiere, and since I last dared creep from the burying grounds to his back garden, when the Madonna still stood sentinel there. This man, Cardin, could buy his transport to any destination in this city, but no driver in France would take a fare from my hand. We walk. I fidget on Cardin's arm. The sun hasn't yet broken the fog, and the cobblestone streets are smudges of soft tan and gray. When did Ramier die? I'm an eater of the dead, yet the word sticks in my throat. Remiere of the broad shoulders and big, brash laugh, and curiously gentle hands, now still and empty and cold as clay. I can't picture it. Tell me. Cardin makes a rumbling, thoughtful noise. Six hours ago. The city clock had just rung two bells. His heart had been failing for some time, and I'd been treating him with morphia. He catches my hand awkwardly and squeezes. It was painless, Delphine, I promise you. That's no comfort to me. I don't understand, I murmur at last. I thought I was only a curiosity to him, a novelty. You were more than that to Remiere. Cardin sighs. Much more. I'm not even human, I protest. The streets are empty, yet I feel watched from every angle. What could he possibly have given me? what he felt you most deserved. The doctor shifts his grip to my elbow and guides me down the room on Tanya. Remier's house is at the end, blue slate and polished glass. His heart. The thin young woman who meets us at the door, garbed head to toe in black, has Remier's black hair and high forehead, but her eyes are pale and cold instead of brown and sparkling, and her mouth is a tight downward line. I know she's Remiere's daughter, named Marie. 
but she doesn't offer her hand. Dr. Cardin, I see you've brought the beast. I flinch from Cardin, and Marie's lips twist up mockingly. I stare into her eyes, seeing myself, seeing my pointed teeth in the forward thrust of my jaw, and I want to hate this girl. I want to say, your mother died bearing you, and before you, there were five stillborn sons, each wrapped by his midwife in a bloody sheet and carried in the garden beneath that statue of the Virgin. But it wasn't Our Lady of Sorrows who bore the meat away, and your father called it the best end he could have wanted for them. I find my voice. Marie, my name is Delphine. She steps back from me wide-eyed. She so it speaks. Cardin, what have you brought into my house? Just following your father's wishes, Marie, he answers. You know the terms. Yes, I know. Marie spits at me and wipes her mouth. My mother suffered and died to give my father even one child, and he loved a monster. A monster. She shakes her forefinger, its nail red lacquered in my face. And my father died still so besotted with you that I can't even inherit properly until you've eaten his heart. His heart? So that's what Cardin had meant. I turn away from her, stumbling. I shouldn't be here. Delphine. Cardin takes me by the shoulders and shakes me, but gently. No, you must. You must. It's what he wanted. He puts his face close to mine and whispers, even if it benefits Marie. She takes what she came for. Without seeing her face, I can hear Marie's teeth scrape together. Just that and not a fiber more. I hold you responsible, Cardin. Of course you do. He puts an arm around my shoulders and guides me past her, toward a staircase. Come, Delphine. Remiere is waiting. Ramirez's house is neither large nor particularly imposing. The walls are dark, the carpet stained, the furniture worn in a way that suggests comfort. The gas lamps glow inside globes of amber glass and cast flickering shadows. I spot a shawl thrown over a chair, and a bouquet of dried flowers lies in the fireplace atop a mound of ashes. But I see nothing I can call decoration. He was a butcher, after all, and a widower and would have been practical. I wonder if it looked different when his wife was alive. You must forgive Marie, Cardin tells me at the top of the stairs. She's young, she's only just found out. I stare down the narrow hallway, but I am a monster. He leads me to the room at the end of the hall and opens the door. I stand in the doorway while Cardin lights the lamps. This is Remiere's bedroom, as plain as the rest of the house. The bed is large and roughly fashioned, and I deliberately keep my gaze down, away from the large familiar shape beneath the pulled up sheet. A red upholstered chair is drawn up to the bedside, the only bright color I've seen, and a black leather bag sits on its seat. Cardin takes up the bag and occupies the chair. My surgical tools, he says apologetically. Marie must have a glimpse before I make the repairs. I skirt the bed carefully, the faintest odor of beginning decay rises to meet me, making my palate tingle and my stomach knot. I haven't eaten in days. If I eat him when he's buried, I say slowly, will she know? I look up, but Cardin's attention is on a threadbare patch in the rug. He'll be cremated tomorrow. He meets my gaze and gives me the barest of smiles. Remiere never expressed his wishes for the rest of the body just his heart. I study Ramier's form beneath its covering and draw back the sheet. The whisper of death, of food, intensifies and my mouth waters. He had startled me that first night, breaking into the crypt in which I was feeding. He'd startled me the next night by coming back to look for me, and the next, until I'd realized I was his focus, and his tomb-defiling work had become an afterthought. Ramier had been a skilled butcher even then, fifty years ago, carving the choicest meat for me from his prizes when he'd been no older than Marie. I should tell her we made love for the first time in an empty grave. Ramier's curly hair is silver now instead of black, and his beard is almost white, and the lines on his face are deep, 
but his brows have kept their color and his shoulders have kept their breath. I climb onto the bed, pulling my skirts up over my thighs as I settle myself in his hips and rest my hands on his shoulders. Even his death pallor makes my skin look gray. I kiss his forehead, his eyebrows, his mouth, and I realize I haven't forgotten how to weep. Do you know, Cardin's voice jerks me upright. He had names for you. His tomb wife, his corpse bride, Delphine de Gaulle. He's twirling a scalpel in his fingers, setting the gleam of the lamplight on the blade. Shall I help you? No, I say, and open Remier's skin with my nails. I shove my fingers to the flesh between his fourth and fifth ribs, a skill I'd learned young, and pry them apart, the bones cracking as they loosen. I worm my hand into the gap and curl my fingers around Remier's heart, still faintly warm, and pull it free, holding it in my hands, taking in the maze of arteries and the padding of visceral fat. Then I honor his wish and my hunger. He should have been yours. That's all Cardin says afterwards, as he wipes my mouth and my hands, as he twists Remier's wedding ring from his finger and presses it into my palm. I hide it in my bodice and keep silent. He leads me back down the stairs as I suck away the blood still edging my nails. Delphine, if you need anything, no. I want no more promises to devour. I've had enough. Thank you, no. Let me go. Marie has sunk into a chair beside the cold fireplace. She springs up as Cardin leads me to the door. I suppose it's done? It's done, Cardin answers. I'll show you. Fair enough. The girl glides up to me with her hands on her hips, looking me over. Abruptly, she grabs my hair and wrenches my head back and sweetly says into my ear, If I see you again, beast, I'll have you hunted down and burned. Marie! Cardin shouts. She lets me go. I snarl at her. Cardin comes between us and backs me out into the street. No, Delphine. We stand on the pavement and he rubs the back of my neck. No. Go back to where you belong. Remember Ramier. Forget his daughter. He makes it sound simple, but I know it's not. You asked me to forgive her. Yes. Will you try? I'll try, I answer. But someday she'll die. And I'm patient. Forgiveness, like love, is almost nothing to me. I still have Remier's flavor on my tongue and behind my teeth. Salty and beefy and copper sweet. I draw his ring from my bodice and slip it over my right thumb bending my hand into a fist. I look up at Cardin, and for the first time in two decades, I feel myself smiling. Perhaps she'll even taste like her father. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the wicked library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this... You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's... Zombie skin. So far into your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become... The Contamination. Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today. Hello everyone and welcome to the post-show interview. Today we are huddled under desks whispering secrets in the bombed out west wing of the library. Um, And I do mean that sort of metaphorically um, because audio wise we tried. We really did try. Scarlet lives out in the middle of nowhere (laughs) USA and um, 
the audio quality in this call definitely dips in and out. It's not as strong as we usually like to share, but there's still some really great stuff that happened in this conversation that I did want to share with you. So I'm Jeanette Andromeda, and today we are talking to Scarlett Algy. So Scarlett, you, um, everyone has just heard two of your short stories, and uh, the first one I would like to talk about is the corpse bride i'm gonna mess up the title because it's the tomb wife the tomb wife yeah corpse bride is totally different i thought of using the corpse bride when i was writing it and i realized no wait that's a movie so So the tomb bride (laughs) tomb wife good gracious i'm just rocking this um yes dear listeners please know that scarlet's being totally entirely rock star awesome today because this is like two days before this episode actually comes up and guess who's totally unprepared you can't see it but my hands are raised um (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile uh scarlet could you tell us a little bit about where this story came from well i'd like to i'd like to know myself where it came (laughs) from um partially it's because um I don't know if it's PC to say this anymore, but I'm a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. Nice. I always liked the ghouls in his stories when he used them, especially the aspect that a lot of them had previously been human, but by basically by eating human flesh, it changed them. And so you have this aspect of the humanity and the monstrous in one body. But really, it was just something that showed up in my head and sort of started writing itself (laughs) so i still have no idea why i decided to set it in like 19th century france (laughs) (laughs) do you speak french or was that just kind of like that popped out i studied it in i studied it in college but that's been almost 20 years ago so it would be very rusty if i tried (laughs) i studied it for a long time and never got very good at speaking it (laughs) so that happens though um i i really enjoyed how you did you took that kind of that humanity and that monstrosity and kind of blended it into this character um and and the thing that like really struck out to me was how you kind of led into this history between oh goodness no 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 delphine delphine how you yes. <laughs> you dove into this history? You kind of you didn't dive into it. You kind of like gave us little breadcrumbs between the between Delphine and Ramir. I'm gonna butcher all of the pronunciations, so you're welcome to anyone who actually speaks French. Um. <laughs> I actually personally, and I could be wrong because I said it's been a long time. I personally hear it as Ramier. That makes but, sense. <laughs> yeah. Ramier. again, you know, I'm in Western Tennessee. I don't exactly have people to speak French with. <laughs> it's true. That is true. I can't, unless you're like getting close to Louisiana, which you probably wouldn't be. I'm looking at a map now. Nope. <laughs> um, it's a few hundred miles. Yeah. yeah. It's a few hundred miles. Just a few hundred. Probably a trip worth making someday. Yeah. I hear good things about, about that part of the world. I do too. So, with this story... What was the what was the first part that kind of came to you? Was it was it this French aspect? Was it this the ghoul aspect that you just started playing with, or what part jumped it out? It was the ghoul mind? aspect that started first. Yeah, that was what that was what I knew before I knew anything else. That and the first sentence. <laughs> so, nice. um, the the setting just kind of I guess worked out from the names. I like it. It's always good when they when the story surprises you. Yeah. You're the one writing it. That, that that's fun. One other thing about this story, I'm curious, how many drafts did this one take for you to get it to the point where we heard it this time? One. Just one? One. That is it. Oh yeah. my gosh. That really was mm-hmm. just a sit down like psh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also has a prequel and a sequel. Ooh. Um, which are in um Lupine Loons, the anthology that Popcorn Press put out for Halloween 2016. Nice. Which is on Amazon. And um, I think one of those got drafted. Uh, the second, the, the sequel story 
which is a good bit longer, got drafted twice because I literally wrote the thing out, went to bed like two o'clock in the morning, woke up five hours later and said, saying to myself, no, that scene is wrong and ended up rewriting the ending. But all three of them have been just, just really, well, the, the really more almost one draft stories. Wow. So that, that always impresses me when like a story really just comes out. I, I should have talked to, I'll have to talk to Dan, talk, try to talk him into doing all three together. That would be cool. <laughs> Next time. Hey, Dan, let's have a reprisal. <laughs> Get all three of those stories. That would be really cool. Because I, I do intend to write more in this universe with these characters, so there there is only, you know, more to come. Nice. There's going to be at least one more story, possibly two or three. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a setting I enjoy playing with, because it's easy for me to get into. In the other stories, what parts of this world do you explore? Um, let's see. I do a little touching on religion and how religion intersects with the idea of these monstrous people. Mm -hmm. Um, world building is something I'm just sort of doing as I go. It seems pretty well uh, fleshed out, pardon the pun, but it does, <laughs> actually. <laughs> like, even as you walked through Ramier's house, it, it felt like, it felt natural. It felt like, yes, this is what this person would be like. And he, like, each of these characters has these little moments of just being incredibly interesting. Like, there's the, just the level of, like, there's a ghoul in your house and you want her to be there. And then you go a little bit deeper, like their their long-standing love affair and the relationship between him and his yes. daughter, <laughs> which is actually something I need to. That's actually something I need to go back and write about is the affair itself because it went on for decades, and you know, just to get the different perspective between you know, okay, he's human. He well, of course, at this point, he's dead. He's human and he's, you know, aging normally while she does not. And so he, you know, she's still a fairly young looking one when he's an old man. And it'd be interesting to look at how the differences in their physiology uh, uh, play into their relationship. I'm sure it does somehow. I, I bet it does. I bet he came back with a lot of like wicked wounds from her nails. <laughs> Just like, oops, I'm sorry. Probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those are designed for like tearing into chests. <laughs> he, he probably had a that few. It was bad probably wounds. difficult to explain to his wife. <laughs> yeah. What happened to you? Uh, I got into a fight with another cat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually interesting for you bring possibility of animals into it is because one of the aspects of ghouls that I have not yet touched on but that Lovecraft did is that dogs hate them. Mm. Like violently hate them. So that may be something to to bring into it at a later date. That would be interesting to see how you kind of bring that in there. Um, so I mm -hmm. did just kind of jump right into the story, so I'm going to continue to jump into your second story, because you have two. And then um, then we'll kind of wiggle back into, hey, who's this Scarlet person? But now I'm just like, <laughs> I'm so interested in your stories. <laughs> like, just want to start there. Okay, so your second story was and drown melancholy and, and oh my god that one just that made me want to go wash out my ears <laughs> so bad <laughs> you touched on some real phobias of mine in this one <laughs> yeah everybody says that's the creepiest thing i've done so far uh -huh. I, I sort of squicked myself writing that in a lot of ways because i don't do 
bugs and, and I have a phobia of drowning. So, oh, so this one was kind of delving into things that were very uncomfortable for you. Yeah, but that's a good thing. So when you were writing this one, was there like a, a sparking incident that brought this one to page? Actually, yes. Uh, you can go on YouTube. Yeah, you can go on YouTube. Uh-huh. I'm not really sure what you would, how you'd search for this, but I've, but it's I know it's there. I've seen it. Oh, this is going to get a little complicated. Okay. Basically, there is a parasite, a hair worm, as it's called, that infests grasshoppers, locusts, crickets, that sort of thing, uh-huh. and. Basically, the hair worm lays its eggs in, if I'm understanding it right, inside the grasshopper. And once it matures, it drives the grasshopper to drown itself. Oh, God. The hair worm breaks out of its body and swims away. Oh, God. And I ran across a writing prompt that brought that up, that whole scenario, and just said, you know, now imagine what would happen if that happened to people. And there we went. <laughs> so... Oh my gosh, that's so terrifying. This is a real I thing. Know. <laughs> oh no. This could be a real thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's really kind of scary to think about because we do have all these weird parasite stories involving humans that are actually like news stories and not fiction. Yeah. So, you know, it's got that shudder factor to it. Oh man, it just like, just, ugh. I, I'm like scratching my skin right now just thinking about <laughs> it. <laughs> like literally. Um it, well, it, it is a phobia of mine. Um also that to get like some sort of a weird infection, uh <laughs> because at one point in my past I had like gotten a cut, went swimming in a lake, and then got this huge infection. So ever since then I've just like I'm a little terrified of like unchlorinated water. <laughs> to say the least, but you, you make it not safe mm-hmm. in chlorinated water either, so good job. Oh, well, I, actually, one of the YouTube videos that I saw of, of the hair worm breaking free of its grasshopper host, um, it doesn't really seem to care what the nearest body of water is, so I have seen at least one YouTube video that involves swimming pool. Whether it's chlorinated or not, doesn't matter. Never go swimming, people. Never go swimming. <laughs> no, no. Oh, Bad God. things happen. Horrible, horrible things crawl into your ears and make terrible pain. Uh, no, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> good gracious. I don't even know where to go from that, other than, like, let's stay on dry land for a moment. Um, <laughs> I'll tell that I used to be a migraine sufferer. I oh, think really? I. What was the, what was yeah, your? Uh... I, I think I grew out of. Oh, you grew out of it. Yeah. Well, I seem to have. I haven't had a migraine in oh ten or fifteen years now. Awesome. But it was it was really easy to conjure up the memory of how it hurt. Yeah. And the whole you know seeing things and everything is too loud and too bright. Yeah, that was that 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 stuck. I I can tell I I had thought at one point in my life I'd had a migraine, but after reading this, it was just a headache. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've never experienced anything this painful, nor like kaleidoscopically, <laughs> I don't know, painful is the best word for that. It, yeah. it was just, a, it was a really great um, description of it. And, and that makes sense that you actually experienced it then. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and my mother, God bless her, she had, had she had cluster headaches, which is the sort oh. the sort that lasts days and weeks, and all that. But I mean, that did eventually resolve, but it was rough while it lasted. Yeah. I mean, how do you keep doing anything when your brain just re- wants to escape out of its skull? I don't know. Very careful. <laughs> Very careful with a lot of medication. Yeah. <laughs> so when um, your broader work of writing do you like these other ones like kind of draw from a lot of personal experience for them yes yes um i have grown up in a family with a lot of chronic illness and i have chronic lung disease myself which is something that's becoming increasingly a problem as i get older 
And so it's very easy to pull on that experience of being sick, being in pain, um, knowing something's wrong with you, not knowing what it is. Those are all pretty universal things and things easy to relate to. Definitely. I think we've all experienced being in pain and not knowing why before. Are there um, just like since, you know, we're just jumping into this without me doing my usual amount of research. Normally I like stalk every single thing an author has online before I talk to them. But you, dear Scarlet, I'm just, I'm learning. It's like we got trapped in the elevator together and now we're just having a conversation. So tell me more about like some of your, um, some of your other work that you've had. I know just thank goodness to your beautiful description on the Wicked Library's website that you've had work in Sanitarium Magazine, Body Parts Magazine, Siren's Call, all of which are amazing. Um, I'm curious what yes, some of your other stories are like. a lot like. of fun to work with. One other thing I've done that I was really proud of is I had a story in another, um, in a, one of Woodbridge Press's, well, it was Woodbridge Press's first anthology, The Haunting of Lake Manor Hotel, which sort of touched on some of the same themes as you never go in the water. The water is never safe. The water's out to get you. That was a lot of fun. It was a, my first time doing a shared world anthology, which I think there need to be more of. Yeah. It was a really was good, good experience, and the whole thing came together with all the other authors really nicely. Nice. How is that different from just creating it for yourself? Well, um, it's different because you're having to play by someone else's rules. Mm -hmm. In this case, the publisher laid out, okay, here's the setting, here's the, you know, here's the backstory, here are, here are the, for lack of a better term, the NPCs, the characters in the background that you can interact with. And so you're sort of constrained, but at the same time, it gives you a very clear idea of where to go. Was it a lot of fun kind of playing within someone else's world? Yes, yes. It's a lot like writing fan fiction, actually. Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah. But you got paid yeah. for it. <laughs> you get paid for it. That's awesome. I was just thinking, like, as you were describing that, oh, it's kind of like playing role-playing games. You have this world that you have to play with. It was exactly like that, yeah. A massive yeah. amount of possibility, even within, like, those restrictions. Sometimes yeah. it helps yeah. to have the restrictions. So, It does. It does, because it, it gives you... It frees you from having to think about certain aspects because they're already set down for you. And so you get to go into more into the, the motives of, say, the individual character or characters that are yours without having to sit down and craft the world from scratch. And you can focus on the fun parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Making people die horribly. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> What was the most difficult death scene you've ever had to write before? Oh gosh, that would probably have to be the very first story I had I had published in Sanitarium magazine was Bleed Through. Uh, it's it's sort of it's an examination of the Ripper murders through the lens of virtual reality. You know, getting to you know put on the headset and put on the gear and actually you know be the murderer and you know and you know experience have that experience and i didn't get to describe one death i got to describe five oh, gosh. and yeah what, what made it difficult it was not so much the fact oh i'm killing these characters because honestly that doesn't bother me it's the fact that there's actually a historical basis for each death and you can get on the internet and find the coroner's reports and get all the gruesome details of what was done and so you're reading this, if you're me, you're reading all this stuff, you know, and trying to sort out, okay, how do I translate this into a fictional account? And at the same time, there's part of you going, I'm a horrible person, I'm going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> how long did you prepare, uh, just like research, just for that one story? Maybe about a week. I wrote it in, I think, two days. Again, nice. So. <laughs> Do you tend to like, write person, that fast? Well, I tend to carry the story around in my head for a long time before I start writing it down. 
because I like to know the end, you know, the beginning, the end, the critical details have those in place. But then once the actual writing starts, it's usually pretty quick. Yeah. Simply because I already know to a large degree what's going to happen in the order it's going to happen in. And so I'm not really stuck in a position of, oh, gee, now what do I do? What now? What comes next? Nice. How long do you think, a, on average, a story lives in your head before it ends up on paper? On average, there are some exceptions to this, but on average, probably a couple of months. I had the basic idea for Bleed Through um, about two months before I started doing the research. And then it just went from there. When I was writing this past October, when I was writing the sequel and prequel to The Tomb Wife, I had, I think, about a 10-day period in which to write those because they, they had a set deadline. And those came out very quickly because I started writing on the 21st and I finished like the morning of the 23rd. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I actually have a tendency to make myself wait until the coming or something because it seems like the pressure helps. So yeah. do you do you pull a lot of all-nighters when you get into writing mode? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. How often do you pull an all-night writer? Oh, gosh. A couple times a month at least, sometimes as much as once a week. It just depends on how fast the plots show up. Nice. Because I, I can go... Uh, I can do, there are months, and I'll, I'll churn out, you know, three or four different things, and then it'll be three or four months before something else comes to me. There's always that little bit of dry spell interspersed between them. That's just when it's marinating in your brain, that's all. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, do you have a favorite, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of coffee for when I need to not sleep. Is there something that helps you stay awake all night? Um, Coke, usually. Sometimes I don't need any help. <laughs> so? Just just sheer obsession. <laughs> Powers yeah, you through the hours. Just, okay, I've got to get this out of my head because it's driving me nuts. <laughs> Sounds so. like something dramatic's happening in the background. Um, yeah, the uh, emergency warning siren is going off and I have no idea why. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. It's not tornado weather, up. is it? <laughs> oh no, oh no, the sky's blue, the sun is shining, it's maybe a fire somewhere. Oh. Or or it could they could it could be a, a test. You never know. <laughs> I I'm always we like not to get warned before they're tested. Yeah, that's true. Um, where I used to live, it was near a nuclear power plant, so whenever I heard sirens in the in the distance, it was always like, is it blue pill time? Is it time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah. This is like 11-year-old oh, me. That'd be kind of nerve-wracking. It's a little nerve-wracking. But they would just, yeah. you know, have them go every once in a while, just make sure they were working. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now I always just like, I hear a siren and go, <gasps> instantly, hackles up. <laughs> Thankfully, I live further away from that power plant now, so... <laughs> a little less dangerous. And before we properly started recording this, Scarlet, um, I wanted to... I asked you if there was anything new you were working on that you wanted to talk about, and I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> well, I'm still in the research phase, so it's not actually being written. But um, Woodbridge Press is working on a sci-fi series called Explorations, and the first volume was Through the Wormhole, which dealt with you know the reality of space travel and all the fun things that go with that. And then the second volume, which I was the editor for, the copy Ooh. editor for, was first was First Contact, which dealt with you know making contact with alien life forms, and that was really terrific experience. It's another of those shared world concepts and it just came together really well. Well, the, the third volume in the series is war. We get into the big, you know, galactic conflicts and things like that. And so I'm getting to write for that, which is a total new experience because I've never written proper sci-fi in my life and I have no idea if I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Better about Expect um, betrayal and lots of experimental tech and probably some horrible deaths. So, 
It's just not made if someone doesn't die horribly. <laughs> it sounds perfect. And and with the uh, siren going in the background, I'm excited that we were talking about <laughs> explorations of war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it immensely. Yeah. So where can people find more of you and your work online? I am at uh, scarletrology.wordpress.com. I'm in the process of building an Amazon author page, and hopefully hopefully by the end of the month I'll have that up and running. One of the things when you do a lot of writing for you know, magazines like Sanitarium and uh, Morpheus Tales, if your name's not one of the first on the list, you know, for contributors, then you basically have to convince Amazon that, yes, I was in this thing, you know, credit me for this. Yeah. So that's a process. <laughs> I imagine it would be. So everyone, go uh, go find Scarlet online and then poke Amazon and tell, her, tell Amazon that she's actually legit and that she deserves an Amazon author page. I am Jeanette Andromeda, and you can find me at horror underscore made on Twitter if you want to talk to me. Otherwise... Check out all of the show notes on wickedlibrary.com. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Scarlett. <laughs> you thank so you. Awesome. I, think the, I think the siren's finally dying. I think the Wicked Librarian <laughs> took care of it for us. I kind of liked the atmosphere of it, actually. <laughs> no, that, that, that was nice, yes. <laughs> this episode on the Wicked Library, we are hiding in a bomb shelter underneath a desk having a very spastic interview. <laughs> Spastic, only due to my part, Bonus points if, you, <laughs> bonus points if you actually work that in there. <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> I'll just cut that to the beginning of it. <laughs> Everybody crawl under a desk. This is going to be a great interview. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Okay, now I have to go see why the dogs are barking. Perfect. So. That was actually good timing then. Um, thank, thank you again. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you anything else you need, just holler at me. I will. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Season 7 of the Wicked Library is sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. Brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers, they bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and, of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Season 7 is also sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition, a topical application that cures eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, the endless ailments we all wish never happen, but do. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound great. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found by visiting thewickedlibrary.com and clicking on today's episode. There, you can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. And hey, guess what? We have t-shirts. That's right. You asked for them. We got them. Go to thewickedlibrary.com and click on t-shirts and more to find the cool stuff. From Mama Marie 88 love the stories. This is an awesome podcast. Thanks so much. From the Romance Games, good, solid fun. I really enjoy this podcast. Each episode brings a new voice on the horror podcast art. The voice acting is great, and the author interviews are well thought out and enjoyable to listen to. And I like that they are willing to take risks with their story selection. And I also love the positive vibe the host has 
and how much they appreciate their audience. Great show, good fun, give it a try. P.S. I love the tie-in to the lift as well. Adds depth to both worlds. From Clara Skies, another five-star review, one of my new favorites. My wife and I found this podcast just in time for a recent road trip. We binged every episode in the car and will definitely be regular listeners from now on. An excellent podcast for anyone who loves short horror stories, especially if you're interested in what the authors have to say about their work and writing processes. Thanks so much for taking the time to rate and review the show. We really appreciate it, and we're glad you're enjoying the work. The Wicked Library is made possible by the following Patreon supporters. Assistant Librarian Scott Jepson, Aaron McCormick, Aaron Vleck, Ada Lee Terrill, Alex Hernandez, Amy Bates, Andrew Dvorak, Ariel Teague, Anthony Buffundo, Bobby Brooks, Brad Erickson, Bria Green, Brianna Lang, Brian K. Veerling, Cameron Callahan, Chris Brown, Kareen White, Everett Lathrop, Francesca D. Martinez, Gavino Aguayo, Heiko Foss, James Powell, Jamie Hardy, Justy Hilberry, Kathy Thompson, Kelly Perkins, Lisa M. DeVole, Marcel Ward, Melinda Dupie, Michael Lusty Smith, Nick Wang, Preston Waller, Pooh Lee, Raphael Estrada, Robert Light, Sam Snap, Seth Williams, Sharon Carrollton, Sophia Rivera, Tamara Rolota, Yosil Lorenzo. You're all awesome. Thanks so much for your support. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. Wait till you see what's been waiting for you in the dark. <laughs>